Sermon Notes podcast. This probably sounds like a different voice than what you've heard before. This is David Matthews, and I'm on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and I'm here. I'm joined with uh, my team leader, Michael Smith. Hey, hey. And uh, we're going to dive on in um, to to John chapter 6 a little bit more. So last week, we had Brian Pope with us, who is um, head of our global outreach ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and he walked us through John chapter 6, and we're actually going to stay there again this week and talk a little bit about uh, just a little section. There's about five verses that fits right in between two uh, bread illustrations. And Michael, you're teaching on a miracle that um, I would say if you grew up in church or didn't, you probably at least have heard of this miracle maybe. It's Jesus walks on water. And so uh, tell us a little bit about what this uh, study has looked like for you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed studying this. You know, I appreciate you bringing that out, Dave. It, it is a very commonly known miracle. It's so common that we actually, people who aren't believers, use that. You know, we've all heard the phrase, oh, yeah, he thinks, they think he walks on water down there, right. or he thinks he can walk on water. Um, you know, we when when Lee and I had the chance to, to go to Israel, and we went out on the Sea of Galilee, I think every single person on the trip at some point said, you going to walk on water? Um, and so, yeah. It seems like the right response, mm-hmm, though. Mm-hmm. It's the well-known, it's a well-known miracle. And my fear with that is that we lose the awe of it, that we're, we're so familiar with it. We're like, Jesus walked on water. Yeah, and? No, right. Jesus walked on water. He was a person, a flesh and blood person. If he stepped on the bathroom scale, the dial spun, like he he should not have right. been able to stand on the surface of the water, and yet he did because of his nature of fully God, fully man. So just studying it and diving into it, no pun intended, has been uh, really interesting. But I've had to remind myself, and I want to remind our listeners, let's not forget how incredible this actually is. And it happens the night after the feeding of the 5,000, right. these two amazing and super well-known miracles happen right there together. Yeah, I got, I got a question for you before we dig, dive in real quick. Um, so you went to the Sea of Galilee how long ago? Uh, three months. How much did that change your studying of this? You know what? It gave me just an incredible mental image. And I think before, for one, I've said this before to other people, before... The, my mental images of Bible stories kind of look like a children's Bible story book. Like I kind of had these pencil drawing pictures or, you know, I grew up in the 70s. So the flannel graph that our teachers in Sunday oh, yeah. school used to Come put on. the little the little characters on. I was kind of stuck in that as far as what I would see in my mind's eye after going to Israel. Now I have a picture of the actual place. I have a sense of how big the Sea of Galilee is and what the water looks like and what the shoreline looks like. And the day we were there, um, it was kind of stormy. It was white capping. The wind was blowing real hard. It was kind of raining sideways. And so even though it was during the daytime, and this happens at three o'clock in the morning, our story does, um, my wife Lee pointed out, this is probably something like what it was like when Jesus walked on the water. So That's actually really cool. Yeah, And I'm a visual learner, so even seeing that and then studying it would have been... 
game changing for me. So I'd say to you and all of our listeners, next time you hear that we're taking a trip, which hopefully we'll get to take one in the next couple of years from Fellowship Fayetteville, put that on your list of something maybe you could do with us one of these days. I know it's on mine. Hey, got a couple of questions for you. One, uh, Brian told us last week that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it's it's one of the few miracles that appears in all uh, four of the Gospels. Um, does this one appear in the other four Gospels? And if it does, are there some differences on what's emphasized? Yeah, that's a great question. Interestingly, it appears in three of the four Gospels. Of course, we're studying John, and as we know, we've said this repeatedly, John selected seven signs that he was using to point us to who Jesus is. He tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says Jesus did a lot more things that could have been written down, but these have been written down so that... Um, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so John has chosen seven miracles specifically to help us come to saving faith in Jesus. Obviously, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, they're, they're also writing um, so that people will come to know Jesus, but they have slightly different agendas. And so um, we find this miracle in Mark chapter 6, and in Matthew chapter 14, interestingly, Luke tells us about the feeding of the 5,000, but omits the walking on the water. Um, why Luke left that out, I can't say, um, but it is recorded in, in Matthew and Mark. And it's funny, I brought a book with me here. Let me flip through my book. Um, <laughs> that I, I didn't know, Dave, that you were going to ask me that, but I had made a note um, in my notes. This is a book called Jesus and the Gospels by Craig Blomberg, who's a commentator. And he says um, that each of the gospel writers have their own distinct emphasis surrounding Jesus' miracles. And I thought, man, this is perfect stuff for sermon notes. This is yeah. the kind of stuff that I won't have time to go into on Sunday, but man, it's really interesting. Dr. Blomberg says, Mark contrasts the miracle-working Messiah with the suffering Messiah and puts all of his miracles in the first half of the book, the first eight chapters. Matthew consistently omits peripheral details from Mark to streamline his account and focus on what Dr. Blomberg calls Christological issues. So Matthew is really interested in showing us that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He says Luke focuses on the conquest of Satan's power and domain. So usually Luke is showing Jesus overcoming the forces of darkness through his miracles. And then, of course, John, as we've already seen, links miracles with discourses as signs to encourage faith. So it's really interesting. With that in mind, Mark really seems to stress Jesus as the miracle worker. Mark's account ends with people bringing the sick to be healed um, because of what Jesus has been doing. Matthew really leans in on Jesus alone as the one who can do these things because Matthew's the only one who tells us about Peter stepping out of the boat, mm. which seems like a really significant part yeah. of the story. Um, but Mark seems, or Matthew seems to be illustrating that when Peter tries to do what he sees Jesus doing, he fails. Um, and needs Jesus to rescue him. And then John, of course, this whole chapter six is this big flashing neon sign that says, Jesus is Yahweh made flesh. Brian did a great job last week talking to us about how just as Yahweh provided bread from heaven for the Israelites in the wilderness, now here in John 6, Jesus comes along and provides a miracle bread for the people gathered in the desolate place. 
Yahweh splits the sea, the Red Sea, so the Israelites can walk through. Now here's Jesus walking on the surface of the water. He's the master of the wind and waves. Only Yahweh can do those things. And so John has got a much different agenda um, with retelling the same story. Um, All all three uh, inerrant, all three empowered by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but with different intent as an author. And so John is really zeroing in on the the deity of Christ. And of course, we'll get to this in the sermon, of course, but when Jesus walks out onto the water in all three accounts, what he says is, it is I, which is a translation of the Greek, ego, me, which means I am. Yeah. Jesus walks onto the water and says, I am. So the burning bush, I am. Yahweh who provides bread, Yahweh who's master over the sea. Now Jesus provides bread, is master over the sea, and says, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because I am That's cool. is here with you. Wow. Yeah, it's really amazing stuff. I will say, since studying this this book of John, um, I'm not saying you can't understand it just reading John, but the more that you understand your Old Testament, this book of John just opens up. It's just amazing. It's Jesus is basically just walking through the Old Testament story that a lot of these people had memorized in their hearts and reframing everything that they had understood about it. And like you just said, with the splitting of the Red Sea, this this continues to do the kind of the, the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, which leads me to my next question. This was written based uh, primarily to a Jewish audience, and um, they had different understandings of of things than than we do when they understood the term sea. What were some some things that came into their mind when when the sea was brought up? Man, that's a great question. In the thinking, not just of ancient Israelites, but ancient people, man, the sea is a place of great mystery. So we live in an era where we can turn on um, the Discovery Channel and see high-def pictures of things that we could never lay eyes on. But they lived in a time when they stood on a deck of a boat and they peered into the inky blackness of the open ocean and who knows what's down there. Not only that, we've all been at the beach or I've never been deep sea fishing, but I guarantee you. I have. It's terrifying. Yeah. I don't don't love boats. So this, this story is a little scary for me. (laughs) What was scary about being out there? You just feel so vulnerable to nature. There's, if, if a storm was to blow through or if something was to jump out of the water, there's nothing you can do. Right. You're just completely in the open. Yeah. And and s- I, some people like that feeling. I do not. So everyone, whether they lean into it or not, experiences that sensation when they're out there. And now imagine doing that. You were probably in a modern boat with an engine yep. and a radio. A professional driver. Who yeah, maybe drive. even a weather radar. Um, now imagine the in the time of Christ and before the Old Testament. Um, The boat that these disciples were in was probably 25, 27 feet long. It was probably about seven feet wide. It's probably about four feet deep. It probably had a single sail that would have been worthless in this instance because the wind was against them. The text tells Mm -hmm. us that the wind was against them. So they probably were sitting with their back toward the front of the boat, rowing as hard as they could. They have no radio. They have no radar. And so this scene kind of encapsulates how Old uh, Old Testament people and ancient people viewed the sea. It's a place of danger, and it's a place of chaos. Every time the sea comes up in the Old Testament, 
it's kind of pictured as a dangerous place and a chaotic place because we all know how quickly the weather can change over the water. And for them, they had no forecasting. They had no way to know what the weather was going to do. And so um, the sea is a really dangerous place. Um, One of the things we're going to do on Sunday morning is we're going to turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, um, it's a... It's a passage about God's steadfast love and um, let the redeemed of the Lord give him credit. And the passage goes through all these things that only God can do. Only God can fill the hungry. Only God can deliver those in distress. Only God can free prisoners. And in the passage, it points to those who are on the sea. Um, And it says that... um, the, the stormy wind lifted up the waves of the sea. And then in verse 28, it says, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. That's Yahweh, all caps, Lord. They cried out to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Verse 30, they were glad when the waters were quiet. Wow. Then we read John's account. Jesus walks out onto the stormy sea, and immediately the storm ceases and they're at, at their destination. Um, and it says in verse 21, they were glad <laughs> to take him into the boat. So to answer your question, I think a first century ancient Jewish reader, their mind would have immediately gone to Psalm 107, that it's Yahweh who right. stills the sea and makes those who were previously in distress glad, mm. which is exactly word for word what Jesus does in John chapter 6. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think about it too from um, the disciples' lens. The sea, a lot of them were, were fishermen, like like we mentioned, and um, it was just an understanding that there were a lot of different gods, like God of the economy. They were uh, gods of wealth. And for them who were fishermen, before they started walking with Jesus— um, they probably prayed to what they thought the God of the sea was in order for them to make money. They had to catch fish to give away to make money. And so in doing this, Jesus is saying, all these other gods that you may think are God of the sea, I walk on top of that, and I bring stillness, and I'm in control. He's making a huge deity claim here by doing this miracle, which is yeah. really cool. Yeah, definitely. Definitely in the broader culture. Right. I don't know if those disciples, you know, they grew up Jewish, so... They probably only worshipped the Jewish God, but they definitely would have been surrounded by, and there were Gentile settlements on the Sea of Galilee, so there definitely would have been people all around them doing exactly what you're saying and praying to these pagan gods of the sea. And so, yeah, for Jesus to literally walk on them and show his power over them. And interestingly that you brought that up, in Matthew 14, um, in verse... 24, and it says the boat was beaten by the waves. That word beaten is usually actually translated tormented. The boat was being tormented. And so even Matthew seems to be saying maybe there's a spiritual force at work here. Wow, that's really cool. So this this wasn't written to us, but it's written for us. So for us, uh, what are some of the big takeaways from, from this passage? Yeah, man, we've already alluded to the first big takeaway, which is Jesus is God over the storm. And so um, the sea is a symbol of a place of chaos, a literal storm. We need Clark here to remind us this is, a, this is an actual storm. Right. This is an actual meteorological event. It's not symbolic. And yet, for us to apply it to our own lives, when we're in the storm, we're in the chaos 
Jesus is God over that chaos. He's not surprised by anything. Nothing's beyond his power, his ability. Um, nothing um, frightens him. He can control um, the events that are around us. But in addition, and what makes Jesus so unique among um, the gods that our culture might put out there or the things that people look to for their salvation. He's not just God over the storm. He meets us in the storm. And so for these disciples, they were being obedient. Jesus put them in the boat and said, go across the lake. They were doing exactly what he told them to. And yet the storm came. And so for us, we shouldn't look at the things that come into our life as necessarily a punishment from God, but to know God is sovereign over this and maybe he wants me to see him more clearly. These disciples saw Jesus walk on the water. In Matthew 14, it says they worshiped him. In John 6, and Brian brought this out last week, just a little bit after this, he's going to say to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter's going to say, you're the son of God. You have the words of life. Um, and so Jesus is going to reveal himself to them in a really powerful way by meeting them in the chaos, in the storm. And that's still true for us. Jesus said, I'll be with you always. And that includes when we find ourselves in a dangerous, frightening situation like these disciples did. And I think that's our big application, our big takeaway from this passage. That's great. Well, I'd encourage you, um, if you listen to this, to, to continue and read the rest of chapter 6. And what I want you to do as you read it is I want you to square every time you see the word believe. And as Michael mentioned, just a good reminder that uh, in John 20, John tells us why he wrote this book, is that you'd believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he says he is, and that by centering your life around him, he's convinced that that is where true fulfillment of life is found. And these signs point to belief, belief in who uh, Jesus is, who he says he is, that he is God. And so I'd encourage you after you listen to this to go read the rest of John chapter six. And Michael, I'm really excited for, for Sunday. It's going to be, be great hearing you expand on this uh, passage a little bit more. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Looking forward to it. Yeah.